We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to. On the run. Fires it again. It's Beasley. Back to Dallas with a touchdown. In his old building. Oh, the ball's taken right out of his hands by the Buffalo defense. Murphy comes up with it. It was Ed Oliver, the rookie first rounder. A little trickery and a pass to boot. Wide open. Singletary with the Buffalo touchdown. First snap inside the 20. Allen, open field, inside the 10. And he goes all the way for the touchdown. Another edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Jim Nance from CBS Sports. Chris, 9 and 3. That's right. Neuf and Trois. <laughs> Nueve and Trace. 9 and 3, baby. Woo! Who else out there is fired up? Come on now. This is amazing. 9 and 3. Nine and three. Don't act like I'm being crazy about this. Tell me that the buzz hasn't worn off of the fact the Bills are nine and three. Come on now. Since our last show, we all got fed on turkey and stuffing. We got drunk on whiskey. The Bills won on national TV for the first time in years. The Patriots lost, and the powers that be decided they wanted another taste of what a Bills quarterback can do on primetime television. Can you remember a week? where it felt this good to be a Buffalo Bills fan? Uh, I would say the 1991 AFC Championship game where we beat the Raiders. Whatever week that was. <laughs> that was a good week. Do you remember it? Because no. uh, I, I think I was... No, I have it on VHS in the back room in <laughs> I case I needed say, to remember. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was still trying to figure out how to tie my shoes and struggling. Yes, 100%. <laughs> me too. Thanksgiving, Chris. What was your game day experience like? All right. Well, uh, this uh, I didn't go to Atlanta for Christmas. Spent it with the lady. First 
holiday together with her, and we went to her cousin's house first, ate there, and then we left to go to... Oh, the traveling yes. holiday. Nobody likes that. I know. So follow, follow me here. Left her cousin's place, and we went to her cousin's husband's parents' place in West Seneca, and we get there... They're, the game had just started. I missed I missed the first minute of the game. I missed kickoff, basically. And they're just wrapping up dinner. And this is the thing that I don't get, because you speak about this on, on the show, how, I guess, doing this podcast and your love of being a Bills fan comes from your dad. And doing this show and us being good now kind of brings a conversation to me and my dad. It's a family thing here. Yeah. So dinner ends for them. I am the only one in the fucking family room watching this game. I still have hors d'oeuvres out from uh, pre-dinner. I'm eating a bunch of shrimp, just stuffing my face with shrimp. Everyone else is in the friggin' living room just chatting it up. Why aren't you guys, why aren't you out here watching this football game? It questions my whole relationship with my lady, (laughs) really, at this point. Now, I'll paint you an opposite picture, folks. My parents' house. God bless them. Saints. Saints on earth. They have me and my wife over. My cousin from Massachusetts comes in. She brings her boyfriend, her affluent whiskey-drinking boyfriend, who shows up with a 1.75-liter bottle of bullet and bullet bourbon and just starts chefing up old fashions. And I got to tell you, he's damn good. Two different types of bitters, uh, the, the, the right cherries, everything was on point. So we're getting nice and lubricated through dinner. You know, we do the whole early dinner thing. We, you know, we're... Trying to make my grandmother as comfortable as possible because she's getting up there, you know? And everybody's just having a nice day. And then the TV comes on. We start watching this football game. And Chris, I'd like to say that I maintained my objectivity on the fact that there was a... Listen, it's a holiday. It's a family time. It's a, No, it was Bill's Sunday all over the place in my parents' house. That's I tried insane. to maintain my composure, but it was hard. And I think I did a good job. I think I did a good job right up until... Now, you see the, the non-call on the Josh Allen slide? Yes, that... Uh, so, I said, okay, if that's how you guys want to call it, because I'm sitting here drinking whiskey and we're not going to get crazy, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maintain a handle on this. I just want to see how they call the rest of the game. So then as the game proceeds, you know, my uncle's house next door. He's what you would in the business call, you know, of, of like a, if, you, if you enjoy people and things and parties... My Uncle Dale is what you would refer to as a stiff. <laughs> so everybody's having dinner over at his house, and my Uncle Brad's texting me going, man, are you guys watching the, are you watching the game yet? Are you watching? So he comes over with his girlfriend, and then my aunts follow him. And next thing you know, there's at least 20 people in my parents' living room watching this game. And I'm getting whiskey drunk. I'm trying to maintain, but the emotion's taking over. And then there's the missed call or, or the, I guess you want to call it a makeup call of some kind, because I see our Dak Prescott lead with the head on a, on, I don't know what you want to call it. It's not a slide attempt. I don't know what the hell that was. And Jerry Hughes pushes into the ground and gets flagged for un- unnecessary roughness. And I said some things about Bill Vinovich and wished some things on him that made my entire family just kind of turn and go, what the hell? Where do you come up with this stuff? I'm surprised you didn't throat punch, uh, Molly's boyfriend take the bottle of whiskey and go out on the deck. Nope. 
Nope, we all survived, folks, and it was a great time. And when the game was over, the house was buzzing. Nobody wanted to, we all, it was just, it was perfect. It was the perfect game on the perfect day, surrounded by my family. Chris, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I would have. I would have enjoyed some company while I watched it. <laughs> well, the good news is you and I can watch every game for the rest of the season together, buddy. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. The statistics of the game. Josh Allen, 19-24, good for 79.1%. A career high. 231 yards, one touchdown, 10 rushes, 43 yards and a touch, and a 120.7 rating. Dak Prescott, 32 of 49, good for 65%, 355 and two touchdowns, one pick, two fumbles, and a 91.8 rating. Buffalo Bills skill players, zero dropped passes, seven different players with catches, six different players with at least one catch of 14 or more yards, 123 yards after the catch, which is almost a season high. Running back Devin Singletary, Four plays of 14 or more yards and a touchdown. The Bills defense, four sacks, two by Ed Oliver, five tackles for loss, three forced fumbles, one by the defensive line, one by the linebacking core, one by our defensive backs. Nine passes defensed, which is a season high. Wide receiver Cole Beasley, six to seven for 110, a touch, and a 49 yards after the catch. Wide receiver Amari Cooper, eight of 11, 85 yards, no touchdowns, 27 yards after the catch. All other Cowboys wide receivers, seven catches, 131 yards. But my favorite statistics, 32.5 million viewers, the most watched NFL regular season game in three years on any televised network. One minute, 36 seconds. 96 seconds in total, Chris. That's the amount of time left on the clock when Jerry Jones stormed out of his suite. <laughs> oh, Chris, so much. I mean, Chris, last week, when you want to phrase how this game went, the Bill stars shined the brightest. That's it. They went down to Dallas and just put on a show. Last week, so much of the conversation around this matchup was about would the Bills be big enough for the moment? What kind of, what are we going to see from them? Are we going to get the same Bills who every time you put them in a big spot or a national stage, they shrivel? Chris, it's not insane to think that, is it? No, because that's, that's what we're used to over the last couple of years. Over and over again, and especially in games against Dallas. Games against Dallas with competent quarterback play, they have rolled us over the last decade. So, when you look at all the questions, you know, what would Buffalo do? What would this game do for our national profile? <laughs> Chris, there was a lot of things that came out of this that satisfied, satisfied a lot of people. But the most satisfying, and when I say that, I'm, I'm telling you to hell with stuffing, to hell with dark meat. <laughs> Chris, the level of satisfaction that I got out of watching Jerry Jones with a scowl on his face and time left on the clock, wave just kind of dismissively at the field and start to amble his way up the stairs. Chris, it was Chris, it was the it was the best tasting thing I had all day. Okay? Not to disparage my mom's cooking, 
the best tasting thing I had all day. You give me a side of gravy and 15 pounds of that right there, and I, I'll be full for days. Well, to make you feel better, today he had his radio show, because, you know, all owners in the NFL have their own radio radio show. <laughs> so uh, he said on his radio show today that uh, Jason Garrett will be coaching in the NFL next year. <laughs> Not the Cowboys. He's he just he's going to be in the NFL next year. If that doesn't say your ass is fired, I don't know what does. Chris, I mean, think about who Jerry Jones is. Why wouldn't he storm out? Not only did you just get embarrassed on national television with players caught Bills players on camera yucking it up at your franchises and your personal ego's expense. But in the process, you allowed the world to see all of the things that suck about your team. That you've spent weeks trying to gloss over from with Chris with this down homey kind of southern drawled buzzword filled nonsense. Everyone got to see it. Your team's a fraud. The reality is that the Cowboys are now the owners of some of the NFL's worst statistics. Chris, the quarterback that they won't sign committed two turnovers, three turnovers on downs, and even though you piled up yardage, <laughs> your overall red zone percentage, you're 20th in the NFL. Your kicker has now missed five of his last six kicks over 40 yards. Cole Beasley, the guy that you moved on from because you said he didn't fit anymore. He had his second best game ever in terms of yards and touchdowns. The last time he did it, in the Cowboys building back in 2015 wearing a Cowboys uniform. And then Thursday, Chris, here's the worst part. It was the fifth time this season that the Cowboys have outgained their opponents in terms of yardage and still lost the game. Chris, I'd be embarrassed too. I'd storm out of the room. I'd throw Chris... If I was Jerry Jones, I'd throw things too. But instead, because apparently he's not a violent man, at whatever his, what, 83, 84, Methuselah, whatever you want to call it. Chris, like the whipped cream that goes on your aunt's pie that she's trying to foist on everybody on Thanksgiving, Jerry Jones cried during his post-game presser. Jerry mm. crying? There ain't no crying in football. Mm. What you crying about? <laughs> Shannon Sharp from Undisputed on... Fox Sports. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, tell me that doesn't make you laugh. Come on now. Deep down in the cockles of that cold black heart that you have, that I have, maybe some of our listeners out there share with me, we can't be alone in taking a little bit. An old man cried on TV, and it's our fault. I know. I just, I need, I need it. Jerry crying. <laughs> there ain't no crying in football. Mm. What you crying about? I can listen to that all day long. I can listen to that all day long. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, my God. But, guys, the fallout was so much bigger than that, both locally and abroad. A win like that on a national stage, Chris, what do you think that does for our just national profile, from your opinion? Uh, well, because I'm such a nerd, and I saw all of this, the statistics that you read off as far as the television ratings, highest-rated Thanksgiving Day game in 27 years, highest-rated game in three years on any network, I think for that reason, and the outcome of that game is why we've got we've gotten flexed to Sunday night against Pittsburgh in two weeks. It's I mean it's just it's a huge win for us. 
I think most of Bill's Mafia didn't think that that was going to happen because we're just used to getting blown out on a national stage. And most it's people, amazing. Well, and I think that most people don't have any expectation from us. I mean, it certainly affected the, the, the sports reporting community at large. Jerry Sullivan actually took a break from being a prick, which I only thought would happen if and when he stepped out in front of a bus. Which, I mean, come on, the guy's built up enough bad karma. It's coming at some point. We got at least a minimum of a mention on almost every major sports show, including one of the most obscure ones, ESPN's MMA commenter, Ariel Helwani. The man went in. And so here I am, drinking the Cowboys fans' tears. Where are you, Cowboys fans? I called my family, and I was just rubbing it in. I was so happy. Josh Allen, Sean McDermott, and Oliver, and, and all these guys. I love the Buffalo Bills. And let me just tell you this. They're going to they're gonna run the table. They're going to win the next four games. The Patriots are going to lose, yes. and we're going to win the AFC East. You heard it here first. The Buffalo Bills are winning the AFC East. Where's my camera? That's Buffalo. a bold prediction. Let's go. No one circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. Holy shit. Ariel Helwani on ESPN's Get Up. You can go find that over there. Holy shit, Chris. It's a little much. A little much, but I'll tell you what. People are finally talking about us. Finally. We have someone's attention. And I'm going to soak in all of it. Chris, I'm going to wallow in it. I think that's the proper term. (laughs) As we move on, though. It didn't just come from nowhere. It took a lot of effort out there in the field. And if we're going to do this in Thanksgiving terms, the defense set the table, Chris. In terms of team defense, that unit as a whole might have played the most complete game possible under the circumstances. Every single level of the defense stepped up at some point and made an impact play. Which is the only way that you take down the number one offense in terms of yardage. There was so many things that they did right. I mean, I could fill a two-hour podcast like I was talking about all of them, but only the pettiest people out there, (laughs) and and some of our most hardcore fans, the lunatic fringe, they're the only persons who would stop by to listen to that. When I look at this on defense, it starts with the coaches and their understanding of the trend that we talked about last week. Despite all the beef the Cowboys have on their offensive line and all of that talent in the backfield, Offensive coordinator Kellen Moore, who, not not surprisingly, is a former quarterback, they've morphed into a team that is afraid to pound the rock. One of my coworkers is a Cowboys fan, and I was talking to him about it on Tuesday. Or was it Monday? No, today's Tuesday. Jesus Christ. I was talking to him about it Monday, and our conversation centered around this idea that Kellen Moore's critical flaw is that he'll run Ezekiel Elliott right up until something bad happens. And by bad, he means he gets less than four yards in a carry. And something in Kellen Moore's brain switches off. And he says, nope, nope, we can't, we can't run. They're on to us. Let's just air the ball out. And Chris, you saw it play out. I mean, think about it. We struggled to stop him on a carry-by-carry basis. Yep. He had a run for 30 yards. He had a run for 20 yards. He averaged six point. Six point, I think it was almost like six point one carries per yards per carry throughout the game. Yet somehow our biggest win of the day on defense was recognizing that they're dumb enough to try to win strength on strength. And they, they leaned on their passing attack against our secondary instead of trying to work us where they should have. And we made them pay for it. 
Ezekiel Elliott. He finished the game. He's the only guy in their team who averaged with more than 3.5 yards per reception or yards after the catch per reception. We tackled everything that moved. Buffalo had five players that did that. And the Bills entered the game leading the NFL in negative plays forced, most of them coming on passing downs. And we continued that trend. The defensive back group, you heard me reference in our stats that they had nine passes broken up and that that's a season high. Our defensive backs broke up five of those passes. Four of them would have been first downs. They had 36 total tackles over the course of the game. The Cowboys kept throwing into them, and we gave them nothing on that front. I mean, Trey White was a focal point, doing everything he could to, to, take, to keep Amari Cooper from taking over the game, which is hard because they clearly tried to feature him in the offense. But when you look at Poyer and Hyde, you can see like their tackle numbers tell the story that this team was just con- convinced that somehow they could air it out on our defense, and our secondary shut the door every single time. One of the interesting things, I think the most interesting storyline out of our secondary, was about the cornerback play when it came to Kevin Johnson and Levi Wallace. I'm not a film study guy, so I reached out to Mario Granada of Hashtag Sports for some insight. And I wanted to know... Why is it that I'm noticing so much more of Kevin Johnson in coverage than I am Levi Wallace, despite the fact that the latter plays more snaps? And the answer was a little bit surprising to me. But it shouldn't be, I guess. Because, Chris, if you think about it, think back to the Dolphins game, where Levi Wallace gave up, what, eight catches? I guess. I mean, I remember the Cleveland game where he let up both touchdowns. So what they figured out over the course of that, that sh- those couple games there was that Levi Wallace is really bad at man coverage. He just He's great when you can leave him in a zone and let him do handle those types of responsibilities and pass a wide receiver off to a safety if he clears his zone. He does not do well when put in man, which is usually what you run if and when the Bills are going to blitz. That's a thing that they do, according to Mario. So what they've started doing is whenever they're going to run that kind of man man coverage blitz concept, they just put Kevin Johnson out there. And you immediately started to see better results on the outside. It was, Chris, in a game that, that where he would probably get you killed, Kevin Johnson comes in and kind of saves our asses because he's been steady and he has he's been healthy. And you think about it. You look at the box score and the end result. He did a fantastic job in keeping everybody hemmed in when he was out there on the field. His catch percentage against in that game was pretty high and Chris ultimately I'm just shocked I'm shocked because it Chris when's the last time you would have you saw a staff interchangeably use players to that degree the early 90s Greg Thompson from cover one said uh, essentially on the topic this is what he said he said it speaks to the fact that our coaching this might be one of the best coaching staff in terms of utilizing personnel because normally, when you're a guy like a, a, corner, a number two cornerback in the NFL, a lot of coaching staffs would see you have those types of games like you had against Cleveland, like you had against Miami. And they would say, okay, you're just not good enough to play out here, so we're going to put in whoever's behind you. Instead, what they've done is said, hey, look, you deserve to be our number two, but we're going to be situational about it, and we trust that we've brought in the right players. We have the right makeup to this entire roster from top to bottom that we can rely on this guy. 
So we're going to stop exposing you in situations where we know you might fail. And instead, we're going to rely on both of your strengths to get the job done. It just uh, it seems like you just uh, explained uh, that our front office and coaching staff buy into analytics. Well, absolutely. And again, it's kudos to them for building a roster that's this varied and this deep. And that success bled over into what our front seven was able to accomplish. Because, Chris, how can you argue with the job they did? First of all, okay, if they're a big part of the reason why the Cowboys abandoned the rushing attack. Think about it. Zeke was getting carries here and there. But again, knowing that their offensive coordinator has this tick, this nervous tick of his, when you stop him for a loss or when you stop him for a two-yard game, this coordinator just immediately thinks he can throw his way out of it, and it saved your front seven by making consistent plays. They backed each other up. It, it was great. And then if you're Dak Prescott, first of all, you know you fucked up when you're throwing interceptions to fat guys. You can't throw interceptions to unathletic defensive tackles like Starla Tulele. You just can't. That was the best because Emmett Smith was in, in the booth when that happened. And you could hear him as Dak Prescott. So, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because he knows. He yeah. knows that as a pro, you can't throw that pick. No. You can throw picks to Micah Hyde on the sideline. You can get Trey White as you're trying to catch your receiver on a deep cross, and he just kind of squares your guy out. Yeah, you can't backpedal for a screen pass and just throw it to a fat man. <laughs> I don't give a fuck how badly your day is going. You can't do that. But then when you look at what the line did, against a veteran offensive line, Ed Oliver had what looked... Chris, I might we, we might look back at this at the end of the season and call it his breakthrough game. In the first half, he was playing he was playing well outside of the line of scrimmage, being matched up against second-year uh, vet... Uh, what is it? Uh, Connor Williams. He was their second-round pick from last year. He's a very good guard. He, he couldn't get consistent penetration. I think it was in the second half there. Yeah, second half, because that's how we scored our second touchdown. Williams goes out with a knee injury. And they put in veteran backup Suofilo. Now, this guy's played for four or five different teams. He played for Houston for a long time. He's Chris, he's experienced. The very first play you put him in the game, Ed Oliver, and call a pass play, Ed Oliver hands him his ass, and it's a strip sack. And from that point forward, Suofilo never really found his footing going up against Oliver. He just whipped his ass. It makes the pocket hostile for Dak Prescott, who then struggled to deal with the pressure and made a lot of absurd plays. Like, Chris, that incompletion to Ezekiel Elliott on fourth down? Yes. That's the byproduct of pressure up the middle that you're not, you're not ready for. Yeah, the throw wasn't even close. Ultimately, when you look at it, Oliver's stat line, two sacks, six combined pressures, three hurries, and seven tackles. All of that came from the rest of the D-line. Phillips, Murphy, and Lawson. That's because after that, they had to focus their attention on what Oliver was doing, and it allowed everybody else to man up against their guys and find wins. Chris, isn't that what Marcel Darius did for us on his way to getting paid? Sounds like it. He commanded the inside of the defensive line and still was able to wreak havoc. Ed Oliver took a step in that direction on, on Thursday. Everyone thrived around him, and I, I'm not going to lie, he set everybody else up around him to have just a phenomenal day. 
On the opposite side of things, the offensive line, they delivered the sweet stuff. I joked around with somebody on Twitter on Friday that I can picture Brandon Bean sitting in the box watching this game with a tear in his eye, kind of biting his knuckle, kind of like a father watching his daughter walk down the aisle. Yeah. You walk her down, and then you got to sit there, and she's going to walk past you, and she's not your little girl anymore. And you're gonna... <laughs> I have to imagine that's what Brandon Bean was feeling. Just pride. Seeing the way his major investments up front paid off in this game. Of course, the thing that was keeping me up at night last week, Cody Ford, yes, and how he might be stuck out on an island sometimes against quality pass rush talent. That went better than anyone could have asked for. I was genuinely impressed with how, especially Robert Quinn, because Robert Quinn has been around for a long time. Demarcus Lawrence is the big name on that D-line, but Quinn has been excelling. I mean, you watch that Cowboys-Patriots game. He was harassing Tom Brady the entire day because their tackles just couldn't stop him. And at the same time, Cody Ford handled him. Handled him relatively well every time he was matched up with him. Chris, do you recall the screenshot of the play where Dallas only rushed three players? Clearly forgetting how good Josh Allen is against his own coverage. Was this just him standing in the one him standing in the pocket, just out on like a beach, just I see everything standing near? Chris, he could have texted his mother in the time he had in the pocket <laughs> to ask her if her seats were okay. And then he just throws a strike downfield. That happens because your offensive line is so good. The Cowboys figured, hey, we have Michael Bennett, we have Demarcus Lawrence, we have Robert Quinn. These guys should be able to get pressure on their own. And it was a joke. The offensive line, they came to play, Chris. We spent time last week talking about how good the defensive line was. And yet, we gave up, I mean, we gave up four sacks. But this is what happens when you dig a little bit deeper than the box score. All but one of them were credited to members of the secondary. And the only other defensive lineman who got a sack that game was a backup D-tackle named Covington, who I've never heard of. That means that while pressure was being created, they had to send extra rushers to actually get to Josh Allen, which indicates, beyond anything else, an offensive line that held its own against what I'd regard as solid competition. Chris, they were everything that you could have asked for. Everything you could have asked for when they put this group together in training camp. The last two weeks, they have been phenomenal. And I think on a national stage that, Chris, people who don't even know about us were watching it going, wow, this line's pretty good. Yeah, I thought they just beat a bunch of crap teams. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Chris, they did everything. They, and what they did was they freed up the rest of the offense for a boatload of explosive plays and freed up our quarterback to dominate the game in a way that we haven't seen and that some of us probably couldn't even have dreamed of before Thanksgiving night. And at that point, if we're going <laughs> to... The defense set the table. The offensive line brought the sweet stuff. Josh Allen, he served the bird. Okay? He served the bird, and I'm not talking about turkey. Not, 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 not the drumstick that he was eating on the 50-yard line <laughs> after the game you know, with NFL Network in his face. No, no. Chef Allen showed up with a massive serving of crow for everyone. For everyone. And for what it's worth, I'm willing to come back for seconds and maybe even thirds. 
Yep, it reminds me of our uh, bi week podcast that we did with Nate Geary, where you <laughs> questioned everything on Josh Allen. Oh, my God. Listen, <sighs> I'm not going to lie to you. I was getting razzed by people in the room who were like, oh, hey, I thought you didn't like this guy. And it's like, ah, fuck. Yes. Yes. I said these things, but this isn't the guy I was mad at. The guy that I'm seeing here with my own two eyes is not the guy I was mad at. It can't be. There's an imposter out there. Where, oh, no. It's it's still Josh Allen. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've seen throughout the, the season, like week one, the Jet game, that he has, I guess he kind of has this clutch gene. And now we're kind of seeing that maybe he's, maybe he's got a national TV gene <laughs> where he comes out and balls out when he knows he's on national TV. Last week, I said the biggest key to victory, with I think what was his amounts to his first game under real pressure other than this year's Patriots game but in hostile territory was going to be how Josh Allen handled quote unquote the moment Chris he took that thing and made it his bitch the man in front of a more than 40 person crowd of his friends and his family back in Fireball with hundreds of Bills fans and thousands of millions of people around the world watching Showed that not only was he up to the task at hand, Chris, he became something that I haven't seen from him at all through this point in his career. But that a decade, Chris, that a decade and a half's worth of Bills quarterbacks couldn't even scratch the surface of. Inevitable. And when I say that I'm thinking about Thanos from the Avengers, he was inevitable. You saw flashes of it in the first two drives that Allen was operating well. Chris, the play where we're coming out of our own end zone. And he rolls out. Oh, he had and a cold bees. And you assume that, okay, this is where Allen's going to take off and run the ball. and then on the, But he never takes his eyes from downfield and delivers a strike for 14 yards to Cole Beasley. I think it went for more. I thought he, he had some yak. No, he did, but it, he caught it at about 8, and he went for about 14 or 15. Right there. That play kind of took me aback. I said, wait a minute. Okay. He's looking downfield while running for the first time, but throwing with perfect mechanics. Yes. With perfect mechanics. Well, isn't he better out of the pocket than in the pocket? Yeah. I mean, Chris, I charted this. I mean, <laughs> as you know how much I love Obviously, charts. you charted it. <laughs> he had, on those first two drives, Chris, he had six negative plays that coincided with back-to-back punts. And even in that, his incompletions weren't terrible passes. They were close balls that just didn't get made. And on that third drive, everything changed. I mean, Allen came out humming the ball without an incompletion while leading the the Bills down the field for a touchdown to Beasley. The fourth and fifth drive, kind of reverted to what the first two were. You know, there was incompletions. There was a sack thrown in there. And the score stayed tied. With a lot of us at home starting to wonder, like, okay, how long can our defense bail us out here? How how long can they keep this game close? And then, Chris, Josh Allen made a play that I think is going to be part of every single Thanksgiving highlight reel for the foreseeable future. Chris, We're talking some incredible Hulk car-throwing type nonsense. What what was your reaction on that play? The quarterback sneak 
I mean, that wasn't, but then was. I mean, I wouldn't say your your reaction probably was the same as my as mine. Like, I don't think I I don't think I saw it because you see him drop the ball and you just immediately hands on your head and you like turn away from the TV. It's like looking at a car accident. You don't want to see this, and then you turn around and it's a first down. You're like, what the fuck just happened? I can only imagine for you, you had like a glass of whiskey that you were ready to throw against your your uh, wall. First of all, it was a red solo cup because my mother doesn't believe in giving me glassware during football. That's actually smart. <laughs> it's a smart move by your mother. But I can see you in this. I mean, in a in a in you know to ten. You know, I was closer to zero, but you know, you're on the other end of the, the spectrum. I bet you thought that that was going to be a failure. No, seeing him like try to find the ball. I would like to hear to four. Name this play the quarterback sneak heard round the world. It was electric. The Chris and again, like Thanos, in that moment, Josh Allen became unfucking touchable. Yeah, I think it. T- I think it t- I walked off like I just hit a like, like a home run. To, end, to win the World Series, he just been hit. I, think, I almost took my shirt off. Yeah. I had to walk. My parents' house is 4,000 square feet. I walked from one end to the other, down the long hallway, and people are like, where's Drew going? And I'm still just yelling to myself, like Stone Cold Steve Austin as I'm walking down the hallway. I'm like, don't take your shirt off because you're going to weird out your cousin's boyfriend. This is the first time he's ever watched football. Yeah, I think I, I sent I think I sent you a text when that happened. I'm like, this is the play. This is why we win this game is the momentum that we get from this one goddamn play. Chris, from that moment forward, undeniable. He had a different look to him. Okay? A different authority that he used to command the offense. And despite the games the Cowboys were trying to run in the secondary, I mean I you you saw a lot of switching with the safeties. You saw a lot of safeties, you know, they play a three-safety scheme and they would drop one down into the box to try to confuse him, try to maybe get some of their pressure home. It didn't matter. All of a sudden, everything stopped to matter because Josh Allen was here and he was here to wreck shit. I mean, that's it. You could not stop him. Chris, my chart, the next 20 attempts, his next 20 plays with the ball in his hands. After that play, two sacks, one incompletion. Those were the only negative plays. Five completions of 15 or more yards. At one point, he had 11 in a row going. He had a rushing touchdown mixed in there and a kneel down to seal a victory in front of the entire country. Chris, that, it, it was like watching, it was like watching a Marvel movie. I think this is the first time since week two when we beat the Giants that you could probably definitively say our offense won us this game. How often is our defense carrying the game? And now we get to see it from our offense. We haven't seen it all season. I love it. I don't know if it it. was the booze. I don't know if it was just it. Chris, I cried a little bit in the aftermath. I teared up a little bit. All right, that's weird. In a house that's standing room only, packed with my family. Just people excited about what they're seeing on TV. I was high-fiving and hugging my way through my entire family. And everybody was buzzing because we had just witnessed something that nobody in present company, young, old, had seen in years. A Bills quarterback rise to the occasion, have his teammates rally around him in that moment, and they carried us to a convincing win. I can tell you this. 
Chris, I didn't eat any pie. I didn't eat any ice cream after that. The whole thing was so satisfying. It was such a nice touch on the Thanksgiving meal that to sully the flavor with anything but bourbon would have been a crime. And for that reason, Chris, who do you think is the hero of the game? Josh Allen. <laughs> do you know who the real heroes are? The guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime. Josh Allen was amazing on Thursday. He tied a amazing. record. He tied a record in this throttling that has stood for 25 years. He became the first quarterback to have both a passing touchdown of 15 or more yards and a rushing touchdown of 15 or more yards on Thanksgiving since 1994 when Jim Kelly did it against the Detroit Lions. Tell me that's not cool. That is very cool. I'm not saying it's time to start fitting the guy for a yellow jacket. But I'm going to raise a glass to the man, and I'm going to wonder if he can't continue this growth. Just how many more records might be coming down, Chris? Jesus. And then, I hated to do it, but we have to name a zero after a game like that, and this week's zero is Steven Hauschka. <laughs> wow, you suck at this. He fucking sucked. He missed another field goal. This time indoors from 50 yards, which in the NFL at this stage, Chris, that's inexcusable. It, it's just not. And then he missed an extra point. An extra point. <laughs> oh. oh. I told everybody who was, who was sitting there with me on Thanksgiving, I was going to start a GoFundMe to help pay for a, for a U-Haul, the big one. And I was going to take it and have it parked outside of Stephen Hauschka's house when he got back from practice on Friday morning. That was my plan. I had it. Ramp down. I'll wait out there with a bullhorn saying, come on, Steve, let's get this done. I understand that people, including the shot callers over at One Bills Drive, value him for his veteran presence. They like the fact that he's there for guys like our friend Reed Ferguson. And for, you know, look at how much they've bonded. Over, over his time here. Yeah, they, they hang out a lot. I mean, Reed's agent got him a Traeger grill to, to celebrate his making the roster, and he left it at Hauschka's house because he's like, well, I'm over at Hauschka's all the time. I might as well go grill. He's there for a young kid like Corey Bohorquez. Yep. To mentor these guys. So I understand the value in that aspect that he brings to the roster, but f- for whatever that's worth, I cannot have a kicker I can't rely on. Chris, he's the 24th ranked kicker in the NFL among all kickers playing at least 10 games. That's it. And made to misses. And yet he's tied for 10th in terms of overall salary and has the highest cap hit in the NFL this season, according to Spotrack.com. Chris, so far it's only cost us one game by my count. I still blame that Cleveland game on Hauschka. Yep. I mean, I'm mad about the offense, but Hauschka could have done more to help us. How long are the Bills? If your aspirations are bigger than just, hey, let's back into the playoffs, how long are you going to sit here with this shitty jack-in-the-box at kicker waiting till the next time it goes off and you miss a makeable field goal and it ends up costing you a meaningful game? Well, I think we'll have uh, Chase McLaughlin back in uh, OTAs and training camp next year to eventually take over. (sighs) To wrap this entire delicious package up, though, so I don't want to dwell on the negative. I mean, come on, folks. We're 9-3. We just throttled the team on national television. Chris, my final thoughts. 
I think the person who most succinctly put it was NFL Network's Peter Schrager. They're really good and young, and I, I said this yesterday on the show that in Tremaine Edmonds and Tredavious White and Ed Oliver, they've got three of the youngest, coolest defensive players in the sport, but because they play in western New York on CBS at 1 p.m. in the eighth game every single week, you haven't seen them do this. Like, they're as fun and as flashy as a Cam Jordan. They're as fun and as flashy as a Jalen Ramsey. You've got guys who have big personalities and big skills. They've just been playing in a market that we don't see enough. So last night, to see it on a national showcase and to have the dominant performance, to see Jerry Hughes flying off the edge, to see Starlo Talele block a field goal, to see Ed Oliver have his fourth sack in two games, this is a top 10 pick. Like, just because you don't see them on television every weekend and the other networks at our show don't talk about them every day doesn't mean they're not doing it this season. That is Peter Schrager, NFL Network, Good Morning Football. Ultimately, the world got a taste of what we here as Bills fans have been chewing on for months. An up-and-down football team that can drive you crazy, but is well-coached, tough mentally, and when things click on all fronts in terms of execution and talent, they're a young, dynamic group of athletes that can, Chris, can hang with a lot of different teams. And the end result, ultimately, the crown jewel, Josh Allen, his performance may have single-handedly landed us a primetime game out of nowhere. Sunday, Chris, when you left my house, I continued drinking on into the night because I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm just having a, I'm just relaxed. I'm having fun. I'm watching football. There's no stress. And then New England's losing. And everything is good and right in the world. And then I see it come across the ticker on the bottom of the TV. Breaking news. Buffalo Bills have been flexed into Sunday night football. Chris, I woke up my entire house at that point. Where were you when you got notified? I was uh, I was at the ladies. We were watching Sunday Night Football, and it, it flashed. Plus, I had seen it on Twitter from uh, Ryan Talbot and uh, Charlie Batch. had tweeted out that there was a lot of chatter that we were going to get flexed to to Sunday night, and it's it's a be- it's a beautiful thing. I w- you know one thing I was going to point out here that fits into this is. I was listening to one of our old shows. By week, you put out a bold prediction that we're going to be in contention for the division in December. Look at that. <laughs> I hate to toot your toot your, your horn when you're right. But. It's, it's all right. You know, it, it only makes my ego even bigger than it already is. It's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Thanksgiving win, you this game, you could argue... It was Josh Allen planting the flag and staking his claim to being something unique. Not just in the minds of Bills fans, but football fans around the country. And dominating the way he did is seemingly propelling Buffalo to, to national recognition. He and Chris, he gave us. He, I, I want to say that it's, it's Allen because he's the draw. He's a quarterback. Everybody looks at the quarterback. If he can be more of what we saw Thursday in the coming weeks, might just be giving Bills fans a hell of a lot more. Bang. Chris, I I don't know how I've gotten to this place. That play, I think, won me over at that point. There you go. Any hesitation, any reservations I had, I had to just stuff them. I had to eat them. 
Yeah. I had to take my crow. I had to pour some franks on it, and I had to mow it down because that game just. And yeah. again, that one that one play it shows you how much of a gamer he is to stand in there, reach his hands into a pile of people, pull out a football, knowing it's fourth and one, and toughs out. He got, he didn't even he got the one yard, but he got two, three more yards. <laughs> It was a play that you don't make. You don't see. I guess that's the thing. That's a that's a heart play. That's a guts play. Yes. It's I sitting in my living room want to get. I want to run through a brick wall for this fucking guy. And I don't even play on the team. There you go, <laughs> folks. What a game it was, and we hope that you all enjoyed it with your families as well. Fresh off that win, folks, it's time to take a look around at this week's AFC Playoff Picture Recap. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what everyone thinks I'm going to do. Flip out, man. (laughs) I just want to know who's coming with me. (laughs) Oh, my God, it's hard not to freak out right now. It really is. Chris, you were over at my house on Sunday. And in 100%. A, and in an attempt to stay abreast of things, we spent our Sunday afternoon watching the AFC North. I mean, can you blame us? Ravens versus San Francisco. I mean, that was appointment television. First yeah. of all, they're an upcoming opponent. Second of all, it's probably the best game between the two best teams in football. Yeah, and then we had Pittsburgh-Cleveland on the other TV because you want to know what the... Well, there's juice the, there. Yeah, the second coming of the Thursday night game. There's and juice, there's wild card implications. Yeah. That game, Plus, we play Pittsburgh in two weeks. The AFC North as a whole has been interesting this year. That is except for Cincinnati. I mean, they played the Jets, and while they've been on a run, Chris, I think we should let our friends from downstate New York do the honors of explaining what happened there. They did something yesterday. The, the Jets, uh, they made history yesterday, the Jets, as only they can. As they became the first team in the history of the NFL, now 100 years old, just think about this, the first team in the history of the NFL to lose to two winless teams that's at, at, at minimum had started the year 0-7 or worse. And they have done it now twice. And you're playing from behind the entire day with an offense that betrayed the quarterback. The head coach betrayed the quarterback. Oh, my God. The garbage offensive line betrayed the quarterback. And the receivers who had drop after drop after drop betrayed the quarterback. I'm not trying to tell you Sam Darnold was perfect in this game. He wasn't great. But the guys around him killed him. Yep, yep, yep. And I like Spiro. I know him a long time. Blame him. Remember I mentioned about years ago that when I saw Don Cricky was doing a Jet game, I knew they were dead? Yes. Well, that's the new one with Spiro. Because right, remember, Spiro it. also did the Dolphin I game. I know, he said that. He, he reminded uh, us. Uh, I mean, you got to be kidding me. So now he is taking over the Don Cricky mantle. <laughs> yes. That when I see Spiro Titus and Adam Archuleta, okay, how this guy's doing it, I don't know. <laughs> okay? Adam Archuleta. Okay, great. When I see those guys, Don Joe Bonino, Evan Roberts, WFAN. Spiro, my boy. Come on now, how are you going to talk? How are you going to speak ill of my man like that? Chris, I'm going to go on record and say that I hope he calls every Bills-Jets game from here to Ragnarok. Come on now. Come on now. 
Ultimately, it was a great day to just sit back and watch the NFL. At this point, the Jets have now lost four four consecutive games outright, Chris, when they're favored by Vegas. And they're somehow favored over Miami this week. I don't know how that's possible. You hate to see it. You hate to see it. Ultimately, Sunday was great. We get to just relax and watch everything play out. And according to 538.com, the results from Sunday show that the Bills' playoff chances have improved to 95%. No, Chris, I'm not talking about the likelihood that my my liver's going to fail me here at some point in the next 20 years. Or the chances that you'll be confused with Cousin Belky. The Bills have an absurd 95% chance of making the playoffs. Chris, it's not quite time to go bananas, but Jesus Christ, I don't even know. What are we doing? Where are we? The 1990, either 93 or 94 Miami Dolphins started at 9-3 and and missed the playoffs. It's still possible. Yeah. I just... I don't know how to feel about it. I'm trying, Chris. This is a team that was supposed to be in a growth year, and not a contending one. And yet, we're one win out of being in the conversation for potentially a first round bye. I don't even want to think about it. I'm trying not to think about it. When you take a look around the NFL, though, there wasn't a, there wasn't a whole lot of change at the top of the AFC divisionally. There was a sizable change. And it's how the Ravens now, by virtue of their win over the, the San Francisco 49ers and the loss by the Patriots to the Texans, now hold the top seed in the AFC, which is huge for the top of the race. Think about it, Chris. The Patriots and their issues on offense and the slate of games that they have in front of them, they play Kansas City this week. And a loss would mean that whatever the outcome of the Bills and Ravens game, their margin for error in terms of playoff seeding is minimal. Yeah, we can't. Minimal. Yeah, we can't have the playoffs going through uh, Gillette. Well, and that's it. And that's the fear, though, is because when you look at I mean, Chris, I saw the stati- I, I heard the statistic on the radio. I have it here. The last two seasons, every team that's made the Super Bowl in the last two years has also had a first round bye. The Patriots are. It's the Patriots. The Patriots have to go through Foxborough if they're going to make it. This all became a lot more interesting this weekend. In terms of the wild card race, I mean, our our win in Dallas obviously was huge to our playoff chances, but there's some things that broke the Bills' way that actually helped boost that score. Cleveland's loss to Pittsburgh, the Titans' win over the Colts, and Kansas City's win over Oakland, which all carried a similar theme. The teams that we most needed to separate separate ourselves from in the wild card race lost fringe contenders you're like i said oakland cleveland guys trying to fight their way back into the race after a slow start we got chris now at this point with five wins across what the, the colts are at six cleveland's at five kansas city's i mean oakland is at five oakland's at six at six excuse me there's only four games left in the season the odds that they catch us aren't great God, which is what caused the spike in our in yeah. our percentage. God, and, and to think if we end up beating Pittsburgh, and that like beat Pittsburgh and you clinch, like that's unheard of. For the Bills to clinch two weeks before the end of the Stop. season. <laughs> 
Week 14 rooting interests, folks. For those of you at home during this week's matchup or who, like me, are going to be scoreboard watching at the stadium, the 1 p.m. slate has a pair of important games for the Bills. Broncos over the Texans. I mean, it's. I'm going to start with that one because it's probably the most improbable. Yes, a win by the Texans would help solidify their lead in the AFC South, which in turn increases the likelihood of them being a one-team division. But, fresh off a win, maybe this Drew Locke kid has something, and maybe a stiff defense is, I don't know, maybe they can bring something more than they brought to the Bills game. <laughs> Chris, Yeah, I don't see it happening, but it would be good for Buffalo. Tampa Bay over Indy. Right now, Indy's the walking wounded in their wide receiver room. Their star running backs are all sorts of banged up. I don't know if there's a whole lot of road left for them here in the playoff chase. So it would be nice for a non-conference opponent to put one of those final nails in the coffin for them. You know what I mean? Lose to somebody who's not also involved in, the, in our own playoff race. I think that's huge. And then when you get home from the stadium, there's another pair of important games, which depending on where you live or if you have the Sunday ticket like me, you'll probably be able to watch and find really interesting. The first one is Oakland over Tennessee. Yeah, Oakland lost last week. It's a big setback to their playoff contention. But then you look at the Titans. Those guys have been red hot ever since they went to Ryan Tannehill. Chris, you could argue that if they had benched Marcus Mariota before the Bills game, we probably would have had a hard time beating that football team. 100%. The way they're playing right now, and the fact that their rushing attack behind Derrick Henry having, again, his late-season surge like he did last year, they're averaging 179 yards per game on the ground over the last month. That is not a team that anyone wants to have to deal with in that wildcard conversation. So a loss for them out west... I think it'd be helpful for just keeping them out of the mix. And then Kansas City over New England. And I don't even think I, Chris, there's a multitude of things I could talk about here, but I don't think I need to overcomplicate this, right? No. Fuck the Patriots. And so with that, we look at our week 14 preview. We have it right here in front of us. Baltimore versus the Buffalo Bills. Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard. The place, New Era Field, Orchard Park, New York. The weather, mostly cloudy. 10% 10% chance of precipitation, 44 degrees. Ian Eagle and Dan Fouts on the call, CBS, 1 o'clock. All right. On the crew, we have somebody named Sean Smith. And the fact that I don't know his name means he hasn't done anything to irk me enough to find him on social media, maybe figure out where he lives. I yeah, don't know. You, would, you would think we would get, like, a Carrente to call this game because it's two playoff teams right now. But you give us somebody we've never heard of. And right now, the Bills are five-and-a-half-point underdogs, according to Westgate. I don't want to alarm anyone, but as we as fans enter Week 14, there's this is something that's completely alien to me. Chris, in all my years as a season ticket holder, this has been laid out in front of us, a chance to clinch a playoff spot before Week 17. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. We're all going to try to maintain our composure. Everyone is going to hold it together. Nobody's yelling. (laughs) Chris. Okay. I need to take a deep breath. (sighs) Goose Fraba. 
With a Bills win and losses by Oakland and Houston, the Bills will formally have achieved a playoff berth for the first time before week 17. For the first time since I've had a driver's license. It would be the first time that they didn't just fall ass backwards into a postseason berth, but instead pried it from the hands of everyone else in the AFC. Just like Josh Allen running for that first down against Dallas. If you can't get excited about that, then I don't know. I don't know that you have a pulse. I mean, guys, this is amazing. There's an amazing opportunity here in front of us. But in order to get to the places that we as a team, I mean, we haven't been, (laughs) that we want to go. Places we haven't been in well over a decade. The 90s. Even two. We have to go on to face the biggest test of our 2019 season because the Baltimore Ravens and their Madness offense are coming to town. And so to help us preview this, we've brought a, a, a second time guest to the podcast. And I think one of the more insightful interviews we've had of this nature, Mr. Ken McCusick, how are you doing tonight? Nice good, Drew. How about you? Not too bad. I don't have a whole lot to complain about. My, my team is on the right side of the coin in terms of playoffs. Uh, surprisingly so, life is good. And I mean, I guess you guys kind of fall into this same boat. Now, for those of you who missed his previous interview last year here, Ken is the, he's the film study analyst and an expert for filmstudybaltimore.com. He also works as a film analyst for 1057 The Fan out there. And he's at Film Study Ravens on Twitter. Ken, I have to ask the question. At the end of last season, your team was a middling contender with a work-in-project quarterback. And somehow in a calendar year, you vaulted to a team that's on top of the world. What is this season's, your, your team's ridiculous ascension, what has that been like for the Ravens fan base? It's been a, a wild ride on a cloud here. Sorry about the dogs here in the background, but we'll uh, deal with that. Um, wild ride on a cloud. And, and, you know, you just hate for it, to think that this could ever end. And the Ravens have, have certainly, in the, during this winning streak, eight games now, they've really climbed a mountain in terms of beating many of the tough teams across the NFL. And yet, they really probably need to win their next seven to hoist the Lombardi. So there's still a, a moon out there awaiting to be, uh, to, to be ascended to. So. Well, I think that's genuinely one of the more... It's one of the more... I don't even know what you want. Improbable things when you take a, when you consider what the Ravens have accomplished in just such a short period of time. When you think of the 2019 Ravens and the season they're having, I mean, when you talk about the Buffalo Bills, one of the things that our detractors will say or point to, or members of our fan base who are just nervous, they'll point to this idea that the Buffalo Bills haven't beaten anybody. Our strength of victory this season is one of the weakest, not just in the NFL, but historically amongst playoff qualifying teams. I think I think the closest was the 2011 Bengals. I think I, I saw somewhere on Twitter today. Whereas when I look at the Ravens, this it'd be one thing to say, okay, this unorthodox attack that they've kind of developed with under Greg Roman, it's only it's working against middling competition. You could point to the fact that the you know, the Browns and the Bengals are in your division. But when you look at the last month and a half of football they've played, they you look at their wins, and it's a veritable who's who of some of the best teams in football right now. None bigger than you guys beating the San Francisco 49ers last week at home. I, 
you guys seem like a legitimate favorite at this point to snag a Lombardi. What does it feel like being, you know, here now from where you were last year personally, based on what you've gotten to watch this team accomplish? Just riding on a cloud in terms of what's going on. You, I, every moment, you know, I'm concerned about what's uh, what's going to go wrong. That's just the nature of, of being a worrier, I guess, about this sort of thing, and maybe being a sports fan in general. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it, too. I can't wait for Sunday to get here. And uh, this is a... You know, an offense that's extremely exciting to watch. The Ravens haven't had, sorry, Baltimore has not had the hot, young NFL quarterback since Burt Jones in the 1970s. So this is a real big change for us. Uh, you know, you guys had the Jim Kelly years. I think those were those were great. But the, the Ravens haven't, uh, Baltimore, Ravens have never had it. Baltimore hasn't had it since the 70s. So it's a, it's a great feeling for us. And this is a historically outstanding offense, particularly when you look at it on a, on a per-drive basis. They trail only the 2007 Patriots, you know, the 18 and one Patriots, with 3.31 points per drive. The Patriots are 3.37, so uh, you know it's a half a touchdown per drive offense. Jesus Christ! I mean, when you see this, when you see the drive charts being put on Twitter, and it's like, oh, here's the last game and a half from the Ravens, and there's two punts. Mm-hmm. So what, what the hell am I looking at? And I guess if we're going to give this preview, it's do it its justice. That's where you have to start with this Ravens team this year. This on the offensive side of the ball, you're talking about Lamar Jackson and Greg Roman, who have found a way to turn playing offense in the NFL into something. I mean, these are video game scores and statistics. They really are. Now, Bills fans are familiar with Greg Roman. He spent a couple of years here in Buffalo, and we know a little bit about his pedigree. He's an offensive coordinator who has kind of made his bones getting the most out of utilizing the legs and the athleticism of his quarterback to augment the arm talent that's already there. And you saw him give uh, Colin Kaepernick his best seasons. Tyrod Taylor was, you know, he hasn't been much as a pro quarterback, but he had some of his better statistical seasons under Greg Roman. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing it now here again. I, I think this is probably his masterpiece. <laughs> you were going to say that this was his opus. You're seeing it play out in 2019 here with the Ravens. Now, as you are an expert in film review, I have to ask, and I know this is kind of a broad question, but what is it that makes this iteration of the Greg Roman kind of RPO-based offense special? Well, the, the difference is clearly it's Lamar. And, and the fact that what he does to opposing defenses and what he then creates for his own offenses has turned a what is a slightly above average talent offensive group into an offensive juggernaut as a as a unit. Uh, he loosens up the entire defense and, and the, the, what they did to the 49ers is just ridiculous. I mean, obviously, the 49ers strength is in the front seven, but we'll start with an example from that game is that they ran all these read option plays, and you guys, I'm sure Bills fans are familiar with that. I don't need to explain it, but I'm going to give it, give, tell you how it impacts that free edge defender. So the Ravens typically will allow one edge defender into the backfield, and you guys, I'm sure, saw this in the air. Right? So that mm-hmm. means an offensive tackle helps with an inside block, and either Joey Bosa or Eric Armstead, two of the most dangerous pass rushers in football, is allowed into the backfield directly at Lamar. Lamar turns to that side always, where the mesh handoff will be, where the open edge defender comes in, sticks the ball into the into the gut of the running back with both hands, and then looks for clues. And this has been what's amazing about Lamar Jackson. He's been right a very high percentage of the time. It's like he knows the the uh, dealer's hole card almost every almost every play, and he pulls the football and and he's when he does pull the football and runs, he's been very very effective. 
And usually that edge defender will take himself out of the play, go after the running back. If he doesn't, he goes after Lamar. Then the, the, the running back takes off of the ball. And, and, you know, all the Ravens running backs have been very effective in terms of yards per carry. Lamar is over eight yards per carry right around that when you take out his kneels. So he's had about 15 or 15 or 16 kneels now to, to win victory formation. Well, I was going to say uh, that one of the ridiculous things about your offense, according to Pro Football Focus, he is the number one quarterback in the NFL in yards off designed runs. And given the scheme, that shouldn't come as a shock to anybody. But it's the way, when you look at first and second, he's first with 514 yards. The next closest quarterback is Kyler Murray with 254. That's that sounds about right. I mean, you're, when, you, when you think about it, the Ravens run almost 50% pistol, something like 45%, and nobody else runs over about 5% pistol. In fact, the Ravens run it more than any other, all other teams combined. So they're probably a film study nightmare. It's fun. <laughs> I mean... Oh, you mean for opponents. For opponents, yeah. That's probably a film study nightmare to try to figure out. Because I'm putting myself into the heads of our defensive coordinator because ultimately that's where I think this game is going to be won or lost as it has been with every opponent you guys have played for over a month, and nobody has had the answer. And I guess that's the thing, is if this is a test, it's trying to figure out who's going to have the answers or how you even come to that. And I think you're, you're talking about looking for clues from the quarterback position. When I look at what the Ravens have been, you know, Chris and I sat down and watched the entirety of the, you know, I've watched some Ravens football, but this Sunday was the first time I've had a free day to just sit down and watch the Ravens play for four quarters. And it was incredibly interesting just to see the, the variance between how a normal football team operates, how this team operates, and how that gives some teams fits based on how they're designed. I mean, the multiple tight end sets, would you agree with me that those are probably one of the most invaluable pieces to this entire offense? Well, they, they, they are very heavy, and, and they block heavy. The 49ers have got a dose of their own medicine from them, but they're, they have a a 300-pound fullback, and they have a 280-pound tight end who they're using as a, a effectively additional motioning offensive lineman. And one of the things that, that you really maybe don't notice if you just watch a little bit of Ravens football is they, they hardly ever waste motion on the wide receiver. And you think about most teams, they use motion on the wide receiver to try and, A, figure out what the defense is doing in terms of manners of coverage, number one, and, and number two, they try to uh, get that wide receiver a free release off the line of scrimmage to help in his route. Well, Ravens don't do that. They really they bring <laughs> tight ends and the fullback in motion, or the H-back or whatever you want to call Ricard and Boyle, um, to try and gain extra blocking advantages with that player. So it's a, it's a very different concept to how you run your offense, and that's, uh, uh, you know, that's the place I have to start when I'm describing it. See, now, in that San Francisco game, I watched them. Mark Andrews becomes incredibly interesting now because, and I guess that's the thing, is when you look at how this team has played offense, you're talking about a team where 44% of the total targets are all allocated to the tight end group. That's an incredible, I mean, that most NFL teams can't operate like that. But when you look at the amount of, I mean, first of all, they've drafted tight ends very highly for years. And it seems like they finally found the right marriage of talent between Nick Boyle as kind of your blocking specialist, Hayden Hurst as kind of the jack-of-all-trades, and Mark Andrews is just this dynamic threat in the seam. I mean, I saw him moved out as a wide receiver on a couple plays. Uh -huh. That's, that's normal to split him out. 
I mean, so his athleticism is clearly there. And right now, he himself, he's fourth in the NFL among tight ends for targets. But he gets a 25% target share. Across the entire team, one out of every four passes is going to tight end Mark Andrews. So he's, he comes on the field. He's he's really a designated target when he when he does. Very exciting player. Uh, you know, last year he set the Ravens record in his rookie year when he, he was largely under the radar with 11.04 yards per target, which is just unbelievably high. Uh, not that's not yards per reception. That's yards per target. So uh, for a tight end, that's that's extraordinary. And you know, he's not he's not the greatest blocker, but he's provided a little bit more value as a blocker. Uh, and and he's uh, absolutely deadly. With the play action the Ravens have been using increasingly through the year, getting those running backs to bite on whatever Lamar is doing, keeping their eyes on Lamar. You always got zone defense against the Ravens, so you got a lot of eyes on Lamar. He's able to manipulate people. Andrews is able to find that space between levels two and three and make big plays. I mean, I think I, I, I think I, I'm just now in my head. I'm picturing the pass from Lamar to Andrews. It wasn't overly remarkable. You're not going to find it on any highlight reel. But it might be one of the best plays, I just pure football plays I've seen in a long time. They run this kind of, you know, run-pass option play. He pulls the ball out, and Lamar throws to the off-shoulder of Andrews in space against the Rams. Where mm-hmm. I, I think you might recall this play. It was for probably 22 yards. But he found a seam so quickly because the linebackers had no choice but to keep their eyes on Lamar. As soon as the ball came out and they realized it, they stopped their feet. And you saw Andrews run right past them. And the second he cleared them, before he was even open, Jackson found a way to get the ball to his back shoulder where the outside corner couldn't come over and disrupt the play. And it's another just chunk play. Is that kind of the modus operandi? And that's what I'm getting a feel for, is that that's the modus operandi here when he's on the field. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And and those two guys, just Taylor Rapp and Corey Littleton, are the are the inside linebacker and dime who basically have all the snaps uh, at that second level on the inside for the Rams. They're the, probably the two best guys the Ravens faced all year. So it doesn't matter who your inside linebackers are; they really can't bite on play action. The guys who bite on all the time, they're dead. Uh, you know that the, the Dolphins and the and the the Bengals in particular in this last game just had guys who, who could not react to it. Uh, but but the other teams, I mean, have, are having all sorts of trouble. The Texans have decent inside linebackers with McKinney and Cunningham, and those guys were biting on it. So it's it's just been it's been wonderful. And and even when the other team thinks they have a way to stop Lamar, I think they underestimate the athleticism and the value that he provides by freezing that defense and just how difficult it is to to uh, to stay spread out and play any kind of reasonable defense against the Ravens' run game with other players. Well, I think that's the other side of this is because here you are, you're so focused on this one dynamic player. These running backs are monsters. I mean, Mark Ingram, I, Alabama fan here. I, <laughs> I watched his career at Alabama. I watched him kind of, he, he never really found a niche with the Saints. I think until Alvin Kamara came around and they really committed to the run. And that's where he kind of hit his stride as a runner. So he comes to the Ravens with still a considerable amount of tread left on the tire. And you guys seem, you're going to run the wheels off of this guy, it feels like. Between him and Gus Edwards, who I think is one of the more underrated running backs in football. Gus Edwards, he's not a burner, but he runs with enough short area quickness and just power. I think he's that mm-hmm. one cut, he gets up the field. You know, that's what we, we see that in Frank Gore, but Frank Gore's 36 years old. So 
He's a much more explosive version of that. Between those two, when you combine them with Lamar, this rushing attack, I mean, would it be fair to say? Because when you look at the passing numbers for Lamar, they haven't been, you know, they're not astronomical. When you see the score, if you were just box score hunting, you'd say, okay, well, Lamar Jackson must be throwing the ball incredibly. He averages about 195 yards a game over the last month. Instead, what you're seeing is the fact that this run game just seems to wait for people to just be lulled into, hey, we have to watch Lamar Jackson, and then you just tee off on people. Is that yeah, about yeah, right? I might say it goes the other way. It's the, it's the greatest running attack of all time. They're going to set their all-time record. They're on pace for more than 3,400 yards right now, I believe, and, and the, the uh, actually, no, slightly under that. But anyway, the, the record's only 3,165. So they're going to they're gonna break it maybe with a game to play. Uh, they've already, they came up just short on the Bills record for 14 games, uh, and they, and they didn't miss it by much. It was like 30, 36 to 30, 88 for the 73 Bills. Jesus. Oh. Are you talking OJ Simpson here? Yeah, the yes. electric so, company. So, my God. Let, let me be careful. Let me be careful here. So it was Lamar's first 14 starts. Okay. Covering eighteen and nineteen, so it was you know even the, the offense was very good last year, but but it's not fair to use the use the starts from both years, <laughs> and then for the for the for two thousand and nineteen, uh, the Patriots nineteen seventy eight record is thirty one sixty five, so they're gonna, they're going to beat that. So what is it that they do well? Is it I mean is it power running? Is it I mean because it, the the running backs that you have, Lamar seems to be the guy who is, you know, sometimes you'll see teams, like when we drafted C.J. Spiller, we thought that, okay, we have a guy like Fred Jackson, who and we have, uh, Jesus Christ, why can't Marshawn Lynch. Marshawn Lynch, who can run between the tackles with power. We need, a, we need a guy who's fast, quick, can get to the edge of a defense, and can get outside and create. Well, Lamar Jackson brings that to you. Yeah. And instead, when I look at Gus Edwards, and when I look at Mark Ingram, what I just see are a pair of hammers, and it, so what style of runs is it that they seem to win with the most? Well, they, they, do, they do a lot of things well. If you're talking inside runs, it's a lot of Edwards and it's some of Ingram in terms of running between the tackles where they always seem to get two double teams and two frozen defenders for starters. So those guys are getting into level two. They're almost always getting positive yardage. When they get to level two, they can break tackles because both of them are big guys. It, that, it's, it's, just, it's really just kind of that simple. Um, the other thing is that, that, you know, there's all sorts of misdirection involved in the offense in terms of getting the ball to other players in space. And some of it are little short routes, whether it's Andrews or Hurst or, or Snead or or even they haven't. One thing this team doesn't do a lot of is, is throw to the running backs, which is very surprising because they certainly have the talent to do it. Um, but they just they Lamar creates space for the entire offense to work and it's a pretty good offensive line that can push people around with double teams and so it's 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 been just very exciting in terms of getting those guys to level two for the first contact see and that and that's going to be a killer because you're talking about a bill's defense that has over the course of this season struggled against the run which honestly it's can and i guess that's the thing is you know we're coming off this win against a dallas football team that we talked about it in last week's podcast, how this is a team that was built to run the football that suddenly decided with the new offensive coordinator that they were going to, let, let's air it out. Let's eschew the run, let's air it out. And what you saw was a team that failed against the Buffalo Bills because they tried to throw directly into the strength of it. I don't believe the Ravens will do that to themselves. I just don't see it. 
I don't see a universe in which this Ravens team comes in here and says, hey, let's get cute. Let's get cute. Let's try to throw the ball four times in the red zone. How confident are you? I mean, if we were going to call this a 60-40 run-to-pass split, if everything goes according to schedule for the Ravens offense, Mm -hmm. do you think 60-40 is fair, or do you think the split might be even higher than that in terms of run-to-pass? Probably not higher than that. The, okay. the the Ravens do want to maintain that that balance themselves as well to try and get, uh, you know, to to have opportunities to make some big chunk plays as well. And they they didn't get all those yards moving down the field by run, you know, in run drives. They've had a bunch of seventy yard drives recently, and it's been a lot of passing as well as running. So it's, uh, you know, it's they're they're not a one dimensional offense. They can do some things. Well, and in terms of doing some things, I mean, I, I, because I look at the, the, the just the attempts. You figure Mark Ingram has 166 attempts. Gus Edwards has 98. Jackson has 140 rushing attempts. The, the, it's clear that that's a focus of the offense, and obviously the tight ends are a huge part of that. When I think about the Buffalo Bills and how we're built on defense, we've got this secondary. We have a great safety group. We've got a solid group of corners that's headlined by, I think, one of the better... I'm not going to call him the best because, again, there's other guys out there. People will fight me to death on that. Trey White is a very, very talented cornerback. And I think that our secondary thrives off what he can do to take out opposing number one wide receivers. The problem I see with this Baltimore team is that I don't even know that the number one wide receiver... I mean, the number one wide receiver on your team is your tight end which immediately is a mismatch because you can't put Trey White on a guy who's six foot six and 280 pounds. You can try. I mean, we did it with Gronk, and it worked to varying levels of success in the past, but ultimately that's you're opening yourself up on the outsides. And that's the other question I have about this. The wide receivers, they're kind of an unheralded group here for the Baltimore Ravens. How are the wide receivers utilized? Okay, so... They've first of all they don't they don't even play two wide receivers That's... on a enormous number of plays so they often only have one. Marquise Brown is a much bigger threat than people give him credit for. He's tremendous speed. Very maybe if most comparable player in the league might be John Brown, but Marquise is probably slightly more talented. He's certainly younger. Uh, he's just been hurt this year, mm-hmm. so he's he has not played all that many snaps. They really put him in like Andrews as a designated receiver, and he's one of, of uh, the favorite targets. On the other side, they have the other draft pick from the third round this year, Miles Boykin. And they have other guys they're playing in there. Sneed and Roberts and players like that have gotten gotten snaps and uh, you know are, are, are making catches. But Boykin is the one with exceptional talent. And they, they hit him twice for long plays in, in the L.A. game. Then he disappeared again this last week, which is disappointing, did not get a target. But he's a huge combine measurables guy, uh, you know, comparable to uh, who's the guy for Seattle that I'm thinking of? Um, Metcalf. Number 14. DK Metcalf. Yeah, that's the guy. Uh, comparable in terms of, of, uh, of combine measurables. Uh, got a little better receiving record at Notre Dame. And uh, really should be a, a, a guy that they fit in the offense more. But for whatever reason, they, they haven't been able to get it done this year so far. So, uh, you know, they've, they've got receiving talent is what I'm going to tell you. So they, they, they do like to go to the tight ends. Lamar definitely likes to stay in the middle of the field. And I tell you what, he really showed against the Patriots that he's able to stay away from a secondary in a game plan. Well, if, and that's, if that's what you want to do. And throw, you want to throw three yards from the line of scrimmage every pass, he can do it. And that's the terrifying thing for me is because I'm trying to – I'm racking my brain here trying to figure, up how, figure out how we match up against this offense. 
And it's unorthodox, which makes it hard. Because, again, you're talking about an offense where if, you know, because I'm looking at the numbers, uh, Hollywood Brown has, a, he gets a 19% share of all the targets. So between him and Andrews, they clearly, when Jackson does want to put the ball in the air, those are the two guys he's going to. There's no other wide receiver on the team who has more than 35 to Brown's 60. Mm-hmm. Boykin has just 11 catches. So it seems to me like this is just a, maybe a chemistry thing. Not even so much that Boykin's doing anything wrong. He's just not being targeted. He's not being... To your point, he didn't get a target during that San Fran game, probably because, hey, this game's tight, and I trust X, and I trust Y. I don't trust Z yet. But with that said, it's going to be extremely interesting for us as a team to try to figure out how we best utilize our personnel to try to slow down what the game plan is. Now, before we switch gears here, I have a philosophical question for you because we saw this play out last season, and I'm I, obviously this isn't the same offensive coordinator, but there's the same kind of feel to what's happening here. Last year, the Ravens were, I wanted to say, don't want to say doing poorly, but they were a middling team. They move away from Joe Flacco, they put in Lamar Jackson, and he goes on this eight-game winning streak to get his team a home playoff game. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you now. You sons of pups, you, you bastards cost me because I lost in fantasy football and it cost me a trip to the playoffs because I started Phillip Rivers against the Ravens in their regular season matchup and he finished the first half with negative two points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I blame you for this because I'm, I'm still salty. But then when they rematched in the postseason, it was a completely different game. You know, they had kind of, it's like with a couple weeks of film study and now having seen it up close and in person once, it'll, it made it easier for them to diagnose the second time around and they were able to find a, a decent game plan to shut it down. Now, obviously, they didn't have all of the talent that they currently have. Is there any worry from someone like you who does a lot of film study and sees the intricacies of this that you could be looking at the same sort of thing? You almost, I, I don't want to compare it to the 2008 Miami Dolphins and the Wildcat, but once the secret's out and people see it, is there any fear that what you guys are doing, once it's been played against once by other teams that are going to be in the playoffs, that that might dry up or that teams could find a way to kind of thwart what it is Jackson's been thriving on? It's, it's, been a, it's certainly been a question that's been asked a lot around here, but they haven't found any in-game act, uh, answer for Jackson. No one has. I mean, literally no one has. They, they can't stop the read option. They can't figure out how he's making the read so well. Uh, they can't increase his turnovers. Hasn't had an interception in the last five or six weeks now again. Uh, you know, they, they can't figure out how to, how to stop them offensively. So if they can't figure it out in-game, I don't think they're going to figure it out game-to-game. The one team that they played for the second time this year is the Cincinnati Bengals. They played them a relatively tight game in Baltimore. The Ravens actually dominated more than the 23-17 score would indicate. And, and for one of several times this year, they drove all the way down the field for about nine minutes in the fourth quarter and ended the game in victory formation inside the 10-yard line. I think that, that – oh, sorry, to finish that story, they went to Cincinnati and then they scored on the first six offensive drives when Lamar was in the game and pulled him. And so it's, it, it's not like anybody's figuring it out. Oh, you left you, – the way – son of a bitch, the way you're telling the story, I, I'm like, okay – so you're telling me there's a chance? Oh, oh, that's what happened. Okay. Yeah. So there's, uh, they went through a, a stretch, and you you mentioned the two punts earlier, but I kind of wanted to, to to see if I had this. This is through the Rams game. So the Cincinnati games, the Lamar drives 
were touchdown, 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 end of half, touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. Against Houston, um, they had missed field goal, fake field goal, touchdown, touchdown, end of half, touchdown, field goal, field goal, touchdown. Against the Rams, they had touchdown, 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 touchdown. And then they had this last game where they scored 20 points, which seems like an enormous reduction in offense against the San Francisco 49ers, two and a half points per drive. And then you realize that's actually more points per drive than the 1999 Rams scored. (sighs) Jesus. So we've talked all about how great this offense is. And obviously drive to drive to drive, they've been wildly successful, historically successful. If they have any sort of Achilles heel, where do you think it is? Uh, we're talking on offense now or on defense? On the offensive side of the ball for these Ravens. If there's a, if there's a, something that, I mean, because obviously it, no team, to your point, no team has been able, for, not, I don't even want to say, within the same game from one drive to the next, has been able to find something to repeatedly kind of thwart them. But if there's something there that you see as you're analyzing the team and you say, okay, that's, that's troubling. What yeah. would it be? Okay, so the, the two weaker offensive linemen were the center position and the left guard. They have very solid tackles, and they have Marshall Yonda at right guard. The, those are not, not problems at all. They, the uh, left guard, Bradley Bozeman, hadn't been playing that well early in the year. Now the last three games he scored a B by my system each game. Uh, he's really cut down on his pass-blocking errors, which have been good. He'd given up a sack in three consecutive games kind of before this winning streak started or right at the beginning of it. And then uh, they lost Matt Skura for the season. Now, Matt Skura is a okay center, and but the, he was you know glue for this offensive line. He made the calls right. Things were, things were operating smoothly. He knows exactly what to do uh, in terms of his own responsibilities within the offense. They brought in Patrick McCarry, an undrafted free agent, and he had two holding penalties in his first game replacing Skura, so that was bad. Very short arms, 31 and a half inches. So I'm, I'm thinking if taller offensive line on the inside could give him a lot of trouble, that would be one of my fears. Uh, the other fear is weather, that, that you know they didn't look good in the passing game at all this last week versus San Francisco in the rain. And going to Buffalo is about as scary as it gets in terms of weather conditions in December. You guys are in for in for a treat because it's supposed to be a balmy forty four degrees. Yes, uh, it's gonna. Uh, you you have no idea how angry I was. I threw yeah. my I threw my closed coffee cup this morning. <laughs> I saw the report. I was like, you gotta be kidding me! Come on, throw me a bone. Uh, I saw a seventeen mile per hour wind. See now so that's that- well that's and that's a given. I mean, well, what was it? The one day the wind gusted so hard, we, we have a pop-up tent that we tailgate with. It, only one of the legs that we had stayed staked down stayed in the ground. The rest of them ripped out. It bent the tent in half, and I got hit in the head by one of the poles as I was bent over trying to get a beer out of the cooler. <laughs> okay, so it didn't have anything that you could damage. <laughs> okay, got it. So it's, but so it's one of those things where wind here in Buffalo, that's just been a thing. Especially this time of year, you're just going to have to deal with it. So it'll be interesting to see if that even plays a role. Now I'm interested in, to see, I mean, Chris, Ed Oliver. Ed that sounds Oliver's like been fun. been on a hot streak, and you're talking about playing, uh, at least if there's something that we can look forward to, maybe it's this idea that Ed Oliver might be impactful against that interior line. Now on defense, I mean, one of the things is this quiet ascension, I mean, because obviously the offense draws all the attention. They get all the eyeballs, they get all the press. But at the same time, 
you're talking about the fact that the scoring defense for the Ravens has carved this ridiculous swath through some of the top offenses in football. You guys have gone on to beat the Seattle Seahawks, the Patriots, the Texans, the Rams, and the 49ers, who have been burying pretty much everybody that you put in front of them. So with that said, I, I, I have to ask, what is the strength of the defensive unit this season? Well, the strength is, is definitely the secondary. Um, See, the, the secondary had problems early on in the year, which is, which is kind of funny. They had a lot of problems at cornerback, weren't expecting it, but they had injuries. Jimmy Smith was injured on the fourth snap of the season or, or thereabouts. So he missed a bunch of weeks and actually never was placed on IR, but didn't return until a point where I believe he could have returned exactly from an IR DTR. Okay. So uh, in any case, that, that was that was part of the problem. So they had some guys that, playing in the, at corner who were not very good. And then the whole Jalen Ramsey thing came up. And I don't know how much Buffalo was considering being in the sweepstakes for Jalen Ramsey, but... <laughs> the cost for me was too high at a single one. That's much too much to give away for 26 games of Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey referred to our quarterback as garbage and then <laughs> taunted us in-game and then got soundly shut up by said garbage quarterback. And the two of them apparently have beef. So I, do, <laughs> I don't think the Bills were ever really in on Jalen Ramsey. All right. Well, as it, as it turned out, of course, Ramsey traded for an absolute king's ransom to the Rams. To make matters worse, this is like adding insult to injury. The Rams to clear cap space to make that trade. Trade Peters. Had to trade Marcus Peters. Yep. And Marcus Peters was traded for pennies on the dollar. I mean, effectively, they traded the fifth-round pick that they acquired for trading their kicker that they had during camp, Kari Vedvik, who's now failed a couple places around the league. Hey, I can thank and him for our Week 1 victory. I said going into that game, I was like, Vedvik, he's on a cold streak. Make him kick. Yeah. And that, that was already his second team there because he'd already been cut by the Vikings during preseason for missed kicks in the, in the worst investment of a fifth-round pick ever. So anyway, the, the, the Ravens acquired that pick, and they also traded Kenny Young, who'd been one of the real big disappointments earlier in the season, an inside linebacker. They got Peters, and now all of a sudden Peters has regained his top form as an interceptor. You may not know this, and this is at, would be absolute sacrilege for a Baltimore guy to say, but Peters is the greatest interceptor of all time in NFL history. And how do I how do I get there? It's by adjusting his interceptions by year to league average interception per game rates, and then averaging that or, or, or projecting that to the 1945 to 2016 average. And so it's 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 a little bit of work, but I'll tell you what we did. Everybody in the NFL who had 15 or more interceptions career. And Ed Reed had 7.67 interceptions per 16 games on that basis, and and uh, Marcus Peters is over one over 8.5. So keep the ball 16. away from Marcus Peters is what I'm there hearing. You go. I'm hearing a whole lot of that. And see, 24. I kind of had a I, I had a feeling you were going to go with the secondary here, and I'll I'll tell you why. I mean, obviously, I mean it's not it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that when you are grinding a team down and scoring points at a rate on a per drive rate the way the Ravens are. You like the 2018 Patriots. Make a team very, or no, what was it, 2011 Patriots? Build it back to front. The year that they almost went undefeated and then didn't because to hell with the Patriots. You're talking about a team that as soon as you can outscore a team like that, you make them essentially one-dimensional. And when you do that, they play directly to whatever is your strongest unit. If, If your secondary is weak, 
what you see is a lot of firefights. You see a lot of games that are high scoring on both sides of the football. When you see the type of dominant numbers and the score disparities that are being put up by the Ravens, you almost have to assume that their secondary is pretty good. Now, the question I have for you is this. Philosophically, do the Ravens like to play more man coverage or do they play more zone? Um, they, they probably like to play more zone coverage because they play more zone coverage when they have a big lead. Okay. okay. One of the things that helps Josh Allen, I mean, they showed this statistic during the Broncos game, mm-hmm. and then you, see, you saw what happened last week when the, when the Cowboys tried to do the same thing. He struggles when you ask him to throw into man coverage, and the disparity isn't even close. His completion percentage against zone is over 70%, whereas against man coverage, he's in the 50s. He, his sack, I think the sack ratio, he has been sacked 16 times when playing against man coverage, which makes sense because that's usually what you do when you're going to pressure a quarterback. If you're going to send a blitz, you try to cover man in a short area and hope that the pass rush gets home before those wide receivers can break loose. At the same time, against zone, he's only been, he was only sacked six times heading into that Dallas game. So he's had a ton of success, and I don't know if it's personnel-driven. I mean, there's smarter people out there than me that can debate that until the cows come home. But at the end of the day, you're talking about a guy who seems to have a knack for hitting those windows in zone defenses. So it'll be interesting to see if they stick with that trend or if they decide to kind of cut loose and play a little bit more man. I mean, I think that would playing man would kind of take away what Marcus Peters does best. Now, yeah, but um, I mean, he plays a, a soft press coverage, Peters in particular. So he really okay. wants to hold the quarterback on a puppet string and get him to do what he wants. So he'll he'll back off a receiver and then immediately break back on the route itself because he, he he's going for the big play. Uh, I, there's no there's no one technique for that. You've got Earl Thomas also lurking back there, who's a you know a safety who reads the quarterback very very well in these kind of situations. Uh, and, and you know the, the quality of the corners is just very high with Jimmy Smith and Marlon Humphrey as well. Mm-hmm. You've got a you've got a very good set. So I, I think what I would say is look at the play action numbers because that might give you an insight into why um, he's been so effective okay. in terms of of the the, the man and zone. But if you, if you if you play against zone a lot and it's a lot of play action. That's when that's when the good play action quarterbacks will tend to really dominate. Now on the side of your front seven. You guys lost a lot up front over the course of the last few years. I mean, there's just been some turnover there. A lot of it's natural. I mean, that's what happens when players get older. Terrell Suggs moves on. You lose Zadarius Smith, who was one of my favorite players in free agency because he's just he, he's an, he's just a very impactful player. He seems like he's built very solidly, never really had an injury history. You lose that guy. But pressure on the quarterback has still been pretty solid for you guys. Who are your biggest pass pass rush threats at this point? And where there's, do you there's really only one guy generating? who can rush the passer on the Ravens. That's Judon. He's the only one who can win a one on one matchup. Everything else is done by scheme. Okay. Uh, what I'll, what I'll say is that Martindale has has been an expert in terms of dialing up the scheme to the proper level to make the other opposing quarterbacks very uncomfortable, creating a, a, a games with many more quarterback hits than sacks. Uh, so the Ravens have had a lot of those and. And also making sure that the secondary is not overtaxed, and they've generally contributed heavily to the success of the pass rush, uh, is not overtaxed in that within that context. So they, they've the other thing they do is they move to a 
a race car package. Somebody could call it a NASCAR package, but they used four outside linebackers on the field at, at one point to, at one time to do their to do their pass rush with one defensive lineman and the dime. So these six defensive backs, no inside linebackers, four outside linebackers, and one uh, heavy, usually Brandon Williams or it might be Pierce, playing over the nose. That's a very effective front for the Ravens to, to generate pressure, and they're not afraid to, to bring guys off the edge or from safety as well. So they're, they're a scheme team. They're not, an, not a team with a bunch of guys who can win one-on-one matchups. It's really only Judon. And you said something interesting. You were talking about in coverage. You were talking about Earl Thomas. You, you are correct. Earl Thomas is a great, I mean, he's a great safety. He has been for a very long time. And it's notable that when you look at the quarterback rating when thrown against, that's, that's a statistic I like. And I, I look and I see that Earl Thomas, when quarterbacks throw specifically at him, they have a 24.1 rating. So obviously yeah, that's yeah, not a place you want to challenge. You, you don't want to challenge the you don't want to challenge that specific player. But then what I'm looking at, especially some of the more advanced metrics, when I'm looking at the linebacking core in general, you've got Patrick Unwasser, you've got Matt Judon, LJ Fort. Um, you've got these linebackers, and they're, the rate at which they allow receptions and the, the yards after catch specifically, it's concerning. I don't know if, I mean, I, I'm assuming in your scheme, Judon kind of plays more of a rush linebacker role, which would kind of lend itself to that. If there's a weakness, is it passing? I mean, especially watching what I saw from San Francisco. Is it kind of getting those guys out in space? Or where would you say the weakness there in that front seven is? The weakness definitely, definitely at inside linebacker. It was a lot worse at the start of the year. They asked Owasso to play the Mike role, and he was completely not suited for it. He's a pure downhill player. Uh, basically he's a pretty good pass rusher, can't cover it all. And in, the worst thing about being a Mike linebacker and being a Wasso is there's no idea what's going on behind him in terms of the pattern, no route recognition for what's going on. Mosley really had that. We saw that come mm-hmm. to, come to the forefront with the interception against Cleveland to win the division last year, but Owasso didn't have it at all. And so he's a fish out of water in that role. They finally had had enough after four weeks and they made changes. They, they acquired Bynes and Fort off the street. Fort's been an outstanding guy as a pass coverage linebacker. They bring in in dime situations, and Bynes has been the run stopper they needed. And has also amazingly had two interceptions and another pass defense. So he's really done you know good things as well. The Ravens' success finding street free agents this year is the big success story of this team, and it's been DeCosta finding them, and then Martindale immediately weaving them into big defensive roles. Who on offense now, no, just talking about this and kind of the problems at linebacker that you guys have been trying to solve over the course of the season, when you take a look at the skill position players that see the most run here, you're talking about Devin Singletary, you're talking about John Brown and Cole Beasley, who on this offense do you think presents the biggest problem to what you guys are trying to do on defense? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, in general, uh, John Brown is, is a lot of speed, so he's, he's always going to be some trouble. To, to deal with and and you know Peters is not a long speed guy so if if you want to try and beat Peters go over the top of him don't don't try and throw anything where he has eyes on you and he's anywhere within a certain radius of the ball this is just always a risk uh, I think in general speedy elusive receivers have given the Ravens some difficulty any anytime you can get somebody you can scheme to get somebody matched up on a linebacker it's generally a good thing um, you know but the but the Ravens the outside corners they have are very good. And their scheme to get to the quarterback and make him uncomfortable is good, even though their individual pass rushers are not. 
God. I, I mean, I feel like this. The, the, the more you look at the numbers and the more we talk about this, this is starting to feel like, Chris, I have the feeling in the pit of my stomach like I do before every Patriots game. Except this might be worse because I watched these guys hand the Patriots their ass. So I don't... <laughs> I mean, Chris, does it bother you as much as it bothers me? Are you concerned? I mean, not really. I mean, <laughs> all I... All, How it, many beers have you had? Two, two, but I mean, all I need is one win over the next four games. <laughs> That's all I know. Okay. You're, we don't you're win, just taking a yeah, macro yeah, look because you're we, not... If you're, we you're don't win, like we don't win this. I'm fine with it. We still got the Steelers with somebody named Devlin, and we also <laughs> yeah. have the Jets again. So those are two really good opportunities to get to ten. So I can I can stomach a loss here. See, and this is how we're different, Ken. This is the yin to the yang. He's he's the more pragmatic of the two of us. Me, I'm gonna I'm gonna be awake all week. Um, so this is gonna be bothering me. Just trying to figure out. How you win in this kind of on paper, it seems like a very much a David versus Goliath matchup. And so, with that said, what's your final prediction for the outcome of the game? Uh, I, I think the Ravens are are likely to win. I think if, if in the case that the Ravens win, they probably win by a lot. Uh, but uh, we'll see how this goes. And, and when I say that, I mean probably two scores. Okay, so you're calling a two score win because I've I've gone on record and said that I wouldn't if we win by a touchdown or less. I mean, lose by a touchdown or less. I'm not going to be heartbroken because you took on a team that's been mowing down everybody who's put in front of them. And yeah, I, I wouldn't be heartbroken by that result either, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> You'd almost take that's what we, that's what we call in the business a silver lining. Ken, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's it's really great to pick your brain, knowing how analytical you are about these things. In the run up to this week's game, where can everybody find your work? Because I'm sure there's going to be a ton of it. Okay, so uh, go to filmstudybaltimore.com. You'll have my articles. I do one each week on the offensive line, one on the defense. A lot of stuff about the pass rush that's that's very specific in the offensive line that's scored on a block-by-block basis. Uh, we have a Know Your Foe episode. Drew's the guest tomorrow. Buffalo fans might want might, might to catch on to that one. And then we have uh, uh, podcasts on the offense and defense reviewing each week with, with uh, rotating guests. Fantastic. And where can we find you on Twitter? At Film Study Ravens. All right, once again, you can go follow Ken McCusick on Twitter, at Film Study Ravens. The guy really knows his stuff about X's and O's of football. Such a good guest. He's a film analyst. He's analytically driven. <sighs> I, And yet at the same time, I feel like he doesn't drink nearly enough to be podcasting because, Chris, come on. I mean, how are you? We have to drink to podcast. Chris, I'm not doing the sober, right? Correct. And so with that... I want to talk about our keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. And right now I'm feeling powerful because I got four of them for you. First of all, as we, as we discussed, the linebackers have got to read and react correctly to defending these RPO and you know, read option concepts. As evidenced by every one of Jackson's carry statistics, their RPO concepts and run option, it's a staple of the attack. Unfortunately, that puts an incredible amount of pressure on Edmonds and Milano. They've been solid this season. This, Chris, might be their biggest test. They're going to have to properly diagnose whether Jackson is truly distributing the ball or has indeed pulled it out. Now, Ken even said they'll allow you to come upfield. 
They'll invite you to sucker yourself into putting one of your players on an island and then taking them out of the equation. And then, at the same time, they're going to have to, in that same window, figure out if he's throwing the ball into the areas of zone coverage that they'd be responsible for, or if he's going to take off. It's a lot to process in a tiny window of time, and that's why no one so far has been able to do it. But when you look at the athletic makeup of our linebackers, Chris, he talked about the Rams linebackers and Littleton and some other guy I've never heard of. Neither one of them run a 4-4 and are 6-5. Neither one of them have Milano's athletic ability in space when it comes to zone coverage. I'd argue this might be the stiffest test he's had in terms of linebackers. I hope so. I don't know what any of that means, but I hope so. I don't know what that means, but I love it. I didn't think it was Talladega Nights. I think they both have the athleticism to both fill run assignments and recover in space if they have to. If they can diagnose these plays quickly enough, they should be able to get themselves in position to be a little bit disruptive. I mean, Chris, that's it. They just have to be stuck. I'm hoping that they've spent 10 hours a day studying film on this. Because, Chris, somebody has to derail this train they're on, right? Yeah, I think they've won eight in a row. Why not us? Yes. <sighs> on the opposite side of the ball, the offensive line has got to be creative in creating space for our running backs to operate. I mean, we talked about it with Ken. It's not as though the, the, def- the linebacking core of the Ravens has been impenetrable. They're averaging 109 yards per game over the last five. But they have three games where they've allowed more than 120 on the ground. And without Matt Breda, San Francisco generated 174 yards rushing. Throw into the equation that, for what it's worth, Garoppolo is not Josh Allen. Everybody likes to point to the fact that Lamar Jackson is this elite rushing talent. Josh Allen has more rushing touchdowns. So I genuinely believe that if these guys up front for us can get to the second level consistently, You heard Ken talk about the lack of pass rush they get. That should almost help you pin your ears back and get after these guys. Get to the second level and get those running back. Get Singletary out in space. Get Josh Allen involved. Make this a game where you give them a taste of their own medicine and you run the ball on them. Because, Chris, that's going to keep their offense on the sideline and allow us to chew clock and promote a closer score. And that's how San Francisco stayed in the game against them last week. It's it, it, Genuinely speaking, if you have an unorthodox offense like this that's hard to defend, it's the only way to keep it from turning into a track meet. Josh Allen. Josh Allen has to protect the ball, but maintain his aggressiveness. Okay, His accurate and aggressive approach to the Cowboys game is ultimately what turned the tide in our favor. It's the reason that we're here celebrating a 9-3 record. We're going to need more of that on Sunday if we're going to win. That means utilizing Beasley, our tight ends, and our running backs against their linebackers and safeties. And there is hay to be made there. You heard us talking about it. Right now, three of the starting four linebackers for the Ravens defense are allowing more than 66% completion percentage. Okay? And their QBRs are an average of 96 when you target the middle of the defense. The problem is is that that's the area of the field where Baltimore has forced a large number of turnovers. 
Their defense has had at least one turnover in every game since the end of September. And since their bye week, they've averaged more than two, yet have only committed four during that same time span. Which, Chris, if you if you turn the ball over on defense, but you don't commit your own turnovers, you're probably going to be in an advantageous spot in most games, right? Yeah. That's where Baltimore is now. For this offense to thrive, Allen's going to have to be aggressive in this area of the field that is fraught with danger. So if you're squeamish, you might want to cover your eyes because this defense is going to dictate that Josh Allen does his... He's going to have to do his best Nick Walenda impersonation. It's going to be a tightrope act that's going to have everybody in attendance on the edge of their seat, and if it goes poorly, it's going to go poorly quickly. It's going to get ugly. And I guess that's the final key, Chris, is everybody in their seats. The 12th man. When I think back to games played at New Era Field in the past few years, I don't know that we've had one in front of us that felt this important. No, I can't recall one at all either. And Chris, you've had, you, you, this is your first year with Seasons. Second. Not, well, second. None of the games you've attended have had this much, I don't know, riding on it. In no. terms of what it could do for us. No. God, if we beat the Ravens, holy shit. I've had tickets for almost a decade. I don't know the last time that I drew, I went into a game thinking, this matters, this can make us. Not break us, but make us. I mean, we talked about it with Ken. If we walk out of this thing, if we get beat by, as long as we don't get blown out by 30, I'm going to look at this and say, okay, we tried. If we lose by seven, I'd say, okay, well, we did better than most people do against this football team. We're now an elite company that only the best teams in football have been able to keep pace with this team. You know, if we... Cause if we won this game. I'll tell you, what, if we win this game, what, this is what happens. Because we don't walk into the game together, but leaving the game, those Army people out front with AKs are going to get some use out of those because <laughs> there's going to be a fucking riot. Cars will be flipped. People, Ravens fans will get beat up. You're, it, you're it, out of your mind. If we win this game, it's going to be a fucking riot outside that stadium. If we win this game, it's going to be because everything clicks for us on defense and on offense. And because we as fans showed up and made life hard on these guys from a communication standpoint. That's it, Chris. Chris... If this doesn't get you fired up, then nothing can. You don't have a pulse. Don't show up on Sunday. Everybody who intends on attending the game alongside Chris and I, if you're going to be down there with us, you need to bring it. None of this standing in line for a pretzel at kickoff. I don't want to see you standing outside of a bathroom holding your girlfriend's purse. Right, throw it in the trash. I want to see all of you out there with me loud and proud, making every single offensive snap for Baltimore a fight for communication. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's give the Bills every advantage that they can get because they're going to need it. Yeah, and it's going to start at about 6.30 in the morning, 6, 6 6.30 in the morning, 53.30, Big Tree Road. Come to our tailgate. If you don't have a tailgate to go to, always, or we got open DMs, DM us. Tell us you want to swing by the tailgate. Come Party with us. I don't know what we're doing for food, but I'll have the traditional chicken wing dip out this week. 
I, I cannot wait. Uh, see, now I'm just talking about I'm fired up. Chris, your prediction. Uh, oh, we're going to lose. Hate to burst everybody's bubble, but... I hate to I, burst your bubble. You owe us Seagram's. Oh, yeah, I do. Jesus, I need to... <laughs> I should, hey, get your Seagram's out, bitch. I should go, uh, I should go grab a Seagram's, but uh, you give your prediction. I'm going to go get a Seagram's and try to finish it before the end of the show. And let's figure out how, how much more wrong you can be. God, ye of no faith. My predictions, my predictions is that I'm going to be hoarse on Monday. My predictions, my predictions is that I'll, I I could be disappointed, but what I'll say is, is that I, I envision this staff with the extra time off with the extra time for therapy. We're going to come into this game healthy. We're going to come into this game with a decent game plan because that seems to be the crux of what this team does. They're well coached. They at least come into every game with a plan that makes sense over the last three games. I can't argue with the results. I I have to believe that this team is capable of at least making this a fight. And Chris, knowing that you're rooting against them and that your your acumen for this is nonsense, Chris, I have to vote in favor of the Bills. Hauschka redemption game. So I don't have to move him out of the city of Buffalo. A field goal victory the same way the Ravens the same way the Ravens beat San Francisco last week, they're going to lose here by a field goal. I'm going to call it 24-21. All right, cool. I'm going to go with 31-20, Baltimore. Wow. Will you do a second Seagrams if it's not only a win, but it's a double-digit win for the Bills? Well, if it's a double-digit win for the Bills... Next week, I will only drink Seagram's on the show. (laughs) The best Seagram's bet ever, folks. On that note, we got to close this bastard out. We look forward to seeing you out there at the stadium. Be loud. Be proud. Bring it. Let's go. And with that, folks, we got to get out of here. Huge thank you to Ken McCusick for stopping by with his film room knowledge. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Pile Report.